All right, guys, y'all show some love to the sponsors of the Straight Out of Prison podcast. Our friend Keely Brown runs her family-owned HVAC Home and Commercial Services. Is your system ready for the summer? Schedule a system checkup or reprogram your thermostat. They offer residential and commercial, at home or at work. They really do what they say, and they say what they do. Our family serving your family has been their core value since day one. Their founder and owner, Mr. Robert Holland, made sure the foundation of Home and Commercial Services was and is integrity. Now, remember, Haley, we, we catered an event last December where he was a part of the group that we were feeding. But it was interesting to learn that when he was a young man, when he first started in the HVAC business, Mr. Holland actually got in trouble with, for not adding new parts that the people didn't need. And they were like, why didn't you sell the parts? And he was like, because I could fix them. And they were like, no, no, you're... you're you're doing it wrong. Like you just got to put new parts. And he was like, but they didn't need new parts. And it bugged him so much that he went out and started his own business. And that's the foundation of home and commercial services. And we can attest to that personally. I mean, they've done so much stuff for us. It's crazy. I love that story. And I think it speaks to obviously his integrity and what he's built his business on that integrity. Right now, the most economical service they offer is their annual residential service agreement. For $150, you'll get two annual checkups, and that's for one system. If if it's an additional system, it's 25% off. Anyways, the annual contract includes priority service, normal rates for after-hour service, 10% discount on any repairs, and a 5% discount on any new installations. It's a good deal especially with the heat of the summer coming. Home and Commercial Services works on all name brands of heating and air conditioning units, gas furnaces, heat pumps, walk-in coolers, and smart thermostats. No job is too big or too small. Call or text Keely at 205-798-0635. Or you can email at office at Holland hcs.com you can look up holland home and commercial services on instagram for daily tips and more or you can check out their website hollandhcs.com we have some amazing friends and supporters of the podcast Lynn and Debbie Hurst, who own Hurst Towing and Recovery in Fultondale and Hayden, Alabama. They serve the Jefferson, Blunt, and surrounding counties. They tow light and heavy-duty vehicles, and they're always there to help. We wouldn't call anybody else. We would never call anybody else, and that's a fact. Would you like to work for an amazing company that treats their employees like family? The Hearst are hiring. Full and part-time positions. Give them a call today. Hearst Towing is there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They've been in our area since January of 1987. They have a heart to serve and they love making an impact in the communities they grew up in. The Hearst definitely make a difference in our world. And they have definitely made a difference in our lives. Dispatchers are always ready to receive calls at 205-631-8697. That is 205-631-TOWS, T-O-W-S. <laughs> you, get, you get me every time I, with the toes. <laughs> <laughs> or check out their website at hearsttowing.com. Now, y'all know James from the podcast, but he also is an amazing cook and private chef. I can attest to that personally. I've had many years of experience in food, just working in, managing, and even owning a couple restaurants. One of his greatest passions is preparing delicious food. You know, if somebody's going through something or through a hard time and you don't know what to do, you can always cook for them. Or you can always call me and I'll cook for them. It's, it really, it's a it's a great way to love people. That journey started early in his beloved granny's kitchen. She was the one that, you know, was always cooking breakfast, lunch, and dinner. She was a Southern belle. She made everything taste good, and I didn't always, sorry, Mom, get that at home. <laughs> but uh, granny taught me how to cook, and I've never looked back from that. James is a Fox 6 Good Day Alabama monthly contributor. It's one of the honors of my life. I love cooking on TV. I love hearing the feedback. I love going in there and having people email me and ask questions. It's just, it's fun. And his peanut butter cobbler recipe was featured on the Food Network show, Carnival Eats. That was kind of a big deal. I mean, it was, uh, it wasn't like I got paid for it, but it was uh, a lot of exposure and it was really fun. Head over to chefjameskjones.com to join our email list. Once you do that, you can stay updated on everything that we're doing. CrossFit Mophobia is owned and operated by Hayden Setzer. Hayden has a degree in exercise science and wellness with a minor in coaching. She is CrossFit Level 2 certified and Precision Nutrition certified. CrossFit Mophobia is located at 222 Decatur Highway in Gardendale, Alabama. Email CrossFitMophobiaInfo at gmail.com or call or text 256-303-1873. Or you can look up everything she does on Facebook and Instagram. CrossFit Mophobia.
Well, hey guys, thanks for tuning in to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Straight Out of Prison Podcast. My name is James K. Jones, and this is my story. And I am Haley Jones, and this is his story that has now become a part of my story. So in the last episode, we went through the, you know, the process of coming back to Sweet Home, Alabama, facing time in uh, Montgomery County Jail, and then my unlikely uh, encounter with Jesus and getting saved. Yeah, after coming off the highest of high, thinking you were going to get bailed out, and then the lowest of low, finding out no way, Jose, and then, yeah, you got saved, and then you were still looking at some pretty hefty time, 10 years, and some other charges in other places, but your your mind, your head was in a good place. Yeah, no, I was actually looking at like three 20-year sentences, but then I ended up, wow. getting, I ended up getting a 10-year sentence with time served, so... With time served, I had already done like almost four years. So depending on the Alabama good time, like I I had no idea how their good time worked. Depending on that, I could be home, you know, in less than a year in my mind. And then I had um, something that changed on the inside of me. And it's um, like my mom and my granny and, you know, people were like, you should be a little more concerned and worried. And I was like, you know, I'm not. I'm good. Like God has a plan for my life. And You'll see. You don't. You just don't understand. So it just shows that everything's relative. Because I think you said last time, you said you were headed off to prison and you were excited about it because you were coming out of the the jail. Yeah. But like, in what world would I ever say I'm going to prison and I'm excited about it? Well, you're excited. <laughs> you're excited to be getting out of jail. Like jail was rough. I mean, especially jail in Alabama. You know, if you're gonna get in trouble. Go do it in somewhere else. Don't do it in Alabama. <laughs> Alabama is rough. But uh, it was fall of 1996. I was full of faith and hope and expectancy, and I, I just felt like, you know, my life has changed. I'm better, and I was uh, headed off to Kilby. Kilby is the name of the prison. Well, no. When I went to prison in Florida, it is a prison, but we talked about the reception center I went to in Florida was Lake Butler. Oh, yes, yes. So Kilby is the Alabama version of Lake Butler. The only difference is in Florida they had three reception centers, north, central, and south, and in Alabama they only have one. So basically uh, the state of Florida incarcerates a whole lot more people, but they uh, they take their uh, stuff a little bit more serious too, so... It was the same as that. I didn't have the kind of fear that I had going the first time because I felt like I'd already been through that. And also I had heard, you know, Kilby's not that big a deal as long as you're doing what you need to do. So so was that true when you got there? Um, I think the first thing that struck me about Kilby was it was like some kind of a weird like time warp. Like this was 1996, and it was almost like it took me back to when I was a little kid in the 70s when we would travel from Atlanta to Phoenix City, Alabama, it was before they didn't have the interstate system built there yet. Like, you couldn't travel from Atlanta to Phoenix City on an interstate, so you had to go through all these back roads. You would just be so aggravated with the long trip, you know, especially as a little kid, and you'd finally get there, and it would be like, we're here, and all you would see is, like, red dirt and steel and cotton mills because that was, you know, that was basically what it was. And there was something about that when we pulled up at Kilby that reminded me of going to Phoenix City as a little kid. Like, we're not in, like, the present time anymore. We're going back, you know, at least 50 years. Um, but it looked like that. A lot of red dirt, steel. Uh, Was that like the Wizard of Oz? We're not in... Not in Kansas not anymore. Not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> yeah, so... But it was it was kind of like that. And then um, it wasn't as scary as... Uh, Lake Butler had been, but it was the same process. They take you in there. They, you know, take all your clothes, look in all your crevices and make you bend over and all that stuff. Oh, that's the worst part, it uh, sounds like to me. It is, but you get you get used to it. I mean, it's what they do. They do that quite a bit. Then they shave your head, make you make sure you shave really good. I remember the first thing I noticed was like they had like a, a weird, like, like a straight, not a straight razor, but a razor that was like a razor blade stuck on the end of a pole. I was like, "What? How do you shave with this?" Like I'd never seen. I'd never seen. Why was it stuck to the end of a pole? No, it was like an old timey, like fifties man's razor. It was like one of those big, thick razor blades that you screwed onto the top, and then you had to figure out how to shave with it. Oh, it wasn't okay. like a disposable razor or anything that you know that I was ever 
used to in, you know, 80, late 80s when I started shaving. And um, I just remember it cut my face up pretty bad. I didn't know how to use it. And then they shave your head, you know, take your picture, do all that stuff. And then here, they threw, like, the powder stuff on us to make sure we didn't have bugs. And you go through all that. But it was just much quicker, easier. They weren't – it was like they weren't trying to humiliate you like they were in, at Lake Butler. They were just trying to get you through. So they fill you up. One of the major differences, I guess, that I noted was in Florida, we wore blue uniforms, and in Alabama, everything was white. And there was something about the white that felt a little more, I don't know if it was clean or... You probably thought it felt more clean. Well, no, the the material felt like it was like softer, like cotton. The ones in Florida, they were like rough, like rough fabric. But anyways, they processed us in. We got in. Um, they put you in an orientation dorm, same as they did in Florida. Again, I was just... Everywhere I went at Kilby those first couple of days, I felt like I was like in a movie, but it was a movie that was from like when Ronald Reagan was acting. Like it was not anything, there was nothing modern. Everything was like old and decrepit and just like, I don't know, it was just like a time warp. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we got through that part. They do the same thing at Kilby they did at Lake Butler. They, you know, they give you tests and they physical, mental, all the things, and then they classify you. So, what, is the men- what does a mental test look like? Like you get, I mean, they're all kind of like bogus, but they do um, like just to test, test your aptitude, make sure you can spell, read, and write. Then there's like some psychological stuff you have to go through to make sure like, I guess to make sure you're not crazy because they have a place for crazy people. And then they ask you just a battery of questions, and they put you through just a, a process of to classify. Classification means that, that you're here, you're going to prison, we've got to classify you so we know where to send you. Okay. So, you know, there's 15, 20 camps in Alabama. There's like 60, 70 in Florida, so they have to figure out how to go about that. Um, in Florida, I was classified as a youthful offender, so that kind of narrowed it for me. In Alabama, I was not classified as that. They had me classified as a violent criminal. Oh, wow. So I was classified to go to a max camp, and there are three max camps in Alabama. One is uh, West Jefferson, which is Donaldson Correctional Facility. One is St. Clair, which is right above Birmingham. And then there's one down south is Atmore, and that's where they actually, people have death sentences. That's where they kill them and stuff. Wow. Um, Yeah, so I was going to one of those three places. So where did you go? Well... Or get sent. Well, they they classified me to go to St. Clair. So that was what they told me I was going to St. Clair. So I got through that process. It lasted two or three days. And they, um, while you're at Kilby, they keep you there until you go to your permanent camp. Yeah. And then if you're lucky, you get tapped to be a permanent party at Kilby. Basically, you serve your time at Kilby, but you're working like in the laundry, in the kitchen, or in classification or something, helping other guys coming through there. And that was a, like... Later on, I would pray I, I could get, like, permanent party at Kilby, but I, I, obviously I did not. But they put us out in, um, there was, like, four or five dorms. There was one, the one that I got assigned to, from the outside, it looked like a Sam's Club or Costco. It was humongous. And on the inside, it looked like, it looked the same. It looked like, like we're in the middle of Sam's, but just with bunks instead of, uh, <laughs> instead of rows of merchandise. And I was, uh, I wasn't really scared. I mean, I, I didn't know anybody. You know, I had been conditioned to how to handle myself in prison, and it it just didn't seem like it was going to be that difficult. I remember they gave us jackets, and in Florida, they get the jackets they gave us were like real jackets. These jackets they gave us were like made out of like pillowcases or something. So they were like, it was just weird. The whole thing was just weird. I settled in, you know, unpacked my stuff, and. Probably the biggest thing that I got excited about was they had popcorn. <laughs> and I know that sounds crazy, but, like, when you go years and years without something, like, I hadn't seen popcorn in, like, four years by this time. And they sold, like, the little microwave bags of popcorn on the store, on the uh, commissary. Uh-huh. And then you could put it in the microwave and you could have popcorn and you could smell it everywhere. Everybody was popping corn, eating popcorn. <laughs> and I, I was just so excited for that popcorn. The best popcorn I ever ate. <laughs> And then I think I was there a day, maybe two days. 
not much longer than two days. And they came to me in the middle of the day, and they said, um, you know, inmate Jones, pack it up. You're going to lockdown. And so... Uh, lockdown? Yeah, that's, that's what they... They don't really... When they tell you to pack your stuff, you just pack your stuff. They don't really... They don't have to tell you anything. But Alabama's a little more... Like, they would try to talk to you a little bit more because they're trying to keep riots and stuff down, whereas in Florida, they would just tell you to shut up. So I was questioned. I was like, lockdown? Like, I didn't, I haven't done, like, I, am I in trouble? I haven't done anything. And they said, well, uh, come on up here. The, the Sarge will explain it to you. So we got, um, packed up my stuff, and, you know, I'm walking through the camp thinking, I didn't do nothing wrong. Um, so this is some kind of mistake. Yeah. I mean, I've only been here for two days, three days by that time. Or a week, I can't remember. I'd only been in general population for two days or a day and a half, something like that. So I was just confident that they made some kind of a mistake. You know, they had the wrong guy, wrong name. And we walk up there, and they're telling me, um, the Sarge looks at me and says, um, we're putting you uh, in the, the lockdown where they put the people with the life without parole sentences. So I was like... I don't have no life without pro sentence. I'm only guy. I've got a ten year sentence. That's all I got. And he said, "Well, uh, the DA in Shelby County, you have a, a pending case there, and he is seeking life without parole against you. So that changes your classification. We have to put you in special population." And I think I almost passed out. Like life without parole. Like what is that? I mean, I don't even know what that for for what does that mean? And then he, he explained, like, the three strikes law. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, tell me about that. It was, uh, well, most recently, like in 2020, that they reversed all that stuff. Just in 2020? Well, maybe it was last, last couple, I mean, uh, last couple years, yeah. So what what is it? It was the Bill Clinton-Joe Biden crime bill they came up with in the 90s. was basically, um, if you commit three felonies, then you get a life without parole sentence. So three, it was called three strikes. No stri- matter what. Three strikes, you're out. Three strikes, you're out. Wow. And, you know, I would see that later on, the effects of that. Like, I knew a guy, Mr. Johnny, was an old black man, and he had a life without parole sentence for stealing a toolbox off the back of a truck because he had two priors. They gave He was from Mobile, and they gave him life without parole. And when I met him, he'd been locked up forget how long but just the is that upsetting to you yes i mean i can almost like see you getting upset just talking about that or saying talking about johnny i guess well no i love mr johnny he was yeah. a good guy he was an old he was an older um older black guy and uh i think eventually he did they did something to help him but just the you know the mere fact of having that on you like, yeah i'm gonna die in prison because I stole a toolbox off the back of a truck. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. and not, not that he was not wrong. He was committing a crime. But, like, the that kind of a sentence don't fit that kind of crime. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. So, but for me, my, my charges were armed robbery. So it actually did fit mine. Right. Because they were trying to keep that off the, I guess, off the streets. Yeah. So... I didn't know what to do. Okay, so really quick, you said they were sending you to lockdown and then special population. You may have said this before, but what exactly, really quick, was is special population? So a special population is you have, like, people that have a death sentence. Okay. And I had never seen things like this in Florida. I was just a, a youthful offender. Okay. But I remember my first or second day at Kilby, they cleared the halls, and when they clear the hall, they just holler at you to get out of the way, like you have to go in a door or whatever to get out of the hall. Uh-huh. And they were bringing a guy down that had so many chains on him, I'd never seen anything like that, but he, like, rattled when he walked. And then some of the inmates were yelling out, dead man walking, and it scared me. And so I asked somebody, they're like, what are they talking about? And they were like, oh, he's got a, a death sentence. Like, they're taking him to death row. And I was just like, well, isn't that mean to be, like, it's awful. It's like mean. to be hollering at, hollering, hollering, dead man walking out. Like, why would we do that? Like, that's that's not funny. But so that was one classification. Another, the second classification in Alabama was life without parole, because there's we have a lot of people in our Alabama prisons that are sentenced to life without parole. And when you're sentenced to life without parole, you have your your AIS number, and then it has an X on the end. So the X on the end just means 
You're dead. I mean, it means you're not coming out of prison before you die. No, you have, you have to die in prison. Yeah. So there are, there are people with life so sentences that get two, out in 20 years. Those two types of people that you just described are the people that go to this special population. Special. Then you have, there's other special populations. There's sex offenders. It's hard to keep sex offenders in general population because they kill them. And then anybody that was former law enforcement or I think like attorneys, certain kind of attorneys and law enforcement, they're a special population. Because, again, you know, if they let them out in general population, you know, somebody finds out, then they'll kill them. So they're a special population. But my special population was... Kilby was actually a medium security camp, and because they had put that life without parole stipulation on me, that made me like a max. I'm a max. My security goes to maximum, so they have to they lock you down. You just have to stay locked down. You just figure it out. So basically, they were putting an X at the end, like you were going to die in prison. Bottom line. Well, they no. You have to be sentenced by a judge for that. Okay, but he was trying to do that. The judge was trying to. Not the judge, the district attorney. Or the district attorney. So I had a case in Shelby County that I had already gotten started. I had my prison sentence and all the stuff in Florida that I had completed except for the probation. Then I got a tenure, two tenure sentences ran concurrent in Montgomery. And then I had an outstanding case in Shelby County, which I had already, you know, got the process rolling on that. But when the DA saw my priors, he... Yeah, it was real popular in the 90s. Like, if you have somebody that commits multiple crimes, to put that on them. I mean, it was popular all over the United States. But I think one of the, one of the things happened with that is what turned us into a prison state because they have to they locked up so many people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Okay, so back to they came and got you, told you you were going to lockdown because you were going to a special population because. The DA had said requested life without parole. Yes, that's what he was seeking. Okay, so from there. So I didn't know what to do. It was like a shock and then um, like just trying to figure it out. But then when they walk you back there, it's like it's right in the middle of the, the camp there. And it's this long, skinny row of just cells with white bars. And the cells were very small. It was like a, there was like a bunk like a uh, like a bunk where you put your mat, and then right next to it there's a toilet and a sink, and then that's the width of the cell. And then there's a little table at the end of the bed, and then everything else is just bars. And you're basically, it's 24-hour lockdown. They let you out like three times a week in handcuffs to go take a shower. You can't even go out and use the phone. They actually bring the phones to you. So just the fact of being there was one thing, but then like – I was like three quarters of the way down, so there was probably like twenty five cells there, just walking by and looking in and seeing the people and it was just like it just reeked of like hopelessness and and you know nothing good like it and more than like seeing the conditions of like the little sardine can that they were gonna put me in was like seeing the look in people's eyes. It was like a dead look. Like, oh, I... like hey, I'm dead. Oh, look, here comes another one. He's dead, too. Kind of, this is kind of how... It, Depressing. How, oh, God. It was the... I mean, I, ugh, I, I've never seen anything like that on Earth. So, I mean, were you scared? Because you came from such a place of hope, and then to find out this and to see these people and the looks in their eyes, I mean... We'll be right back. Head over to our YouTube channel for recipes, podcasts, and now we're even live streaming stuff to give you guys real glimpses into our daily lives. Yikes. You'll also be able to see the podcast behind the scenes and unedited live streams. We've added the first five seasons of the Straight Out of Prison podcast, and even if you've listened to all of them, check out the video format to see pictures, behind the scenes, and a whole lot more. And while you're there, please hit the subscribe button. It won't cost you anything, but it does help us reach our goals to reach a larger audience. Look up Chef James K. Jones on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button so you never miss a recipe or a podcast. For exclusive content, download the Patreon app and look up Team Jones Media. You'll find many levels of subscriptions 
but all levels have one feature. You'll get early access to all of our podcast platforms, and they're completely free from ads. Thank you, thank you, thank you guys for all your support, all your encouragement, and thank you for being a part of our story. It was very sobering and I was scared, but at the same time, I just like, I couldn't, the first day I couldn't process it in my mind. Like, this ain't, this ain't happening to me. But then, you know, you get in there, you don't have anything to do. There's no like TV, there's nothing to do except for like read, write letters and listen to radio. And it was like, there was an unmistakable, you know, whatever had changed with me on the inside of me. You know, I guess that had been like four or five months before that in the Montgomery County Jail. It had not left me. So Jesus was with me. I mean, and it was, there was no denying like his, his presence was with me, but it was so hard to like believe in that and then have your eyes and your ears and every, you see, what you see is not that. Does that make sense? Yeah, like nothing around you. So what I saw was was like death. Like this is these people are trying to kill me. And I mean they weren't trying to like give me a death sentence, but basically if you get a an X behind your number, that's a death sentence. Like you ain't going nowhere. Mm-hmm. There's no nothing for you. Just figured out. I can't imagine. Well, now later on I would meet a lot of guys like that, but at this time I didn't really. I'd never been exposed to anything like that. I think when I was in prison in Florida, the, I knew I got had 20 years. That was the most I'd ever even heard of. Like, I never—this was just for me. It was just like a cold, harsh splash back into reality. And mm-hmm. then, you know, I called my mom, and, like, the way her response to it was, uh, you know, she was, of course, you know, freaked out and crying and screaming and doing all the things. But then um, it was like something she said to me. It's almost like when you're when you're down, like the people that are closest to you can like get at you the worst. And um, and she wasn't saying this like to like to come at me or you know she's my mom is for me, you know what I'm saying. But she she just was like confused and she basically said, um, "Seems like when you didn't pray and do all this Jesus stuff, everything was better for you. Like ever since you started all this praying and." Jesus stuff like everything just seems like it's just getting worse and I was you know like hmm <laughs> you know that, uh, things that make you go hmm no I mean but it it was it was kind of like hmm <laughs> but you know later on I would look at that and here's the, here's what I know I would have never gotten through that without Jesus like I know that on this side like especially some of the things that would come after that I never would have made it through it without him but it uh, it was rough. I mean, that was I was in a rough place, and I you know I thought like I'd been in rough places before, but this was a uh, new level. Does that make sense? Yeah. So how long were you in lockdown? Well, uh, I w- I would be there until I got my sentence, and then they sent me to my camp. So once they put that on you, you're in there for the long haul. And that could be a year, it could be months, it could be wow. it could be whatever. And there was no again, this was like county jail is you're locked up in a pod, but this is you literally have like a ten foot by four foot space that you're confined. Like you can I could stand up in the middle of that cell and put my arms out and I couldn't put I couldn't just touch the wall. I couldn't even touch the walls. It was so it was just a narrow it was like a coffin almost, like this was they got me. I'm dead. Um, but in my shock, I mean, I was in shock. But I decided, you know, whatever the God has started with me, I'm just going to choose to. I ain't got nothing else to do. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have I don't have nothing else. And there was nothing I could see in front of me that gave me hope. But the, His presence was there. I had my Bible. His presence was real. And then I felt like, you know, the little, like the still small voice was just like, I just need you to keep trusting me. I just need you to keep believing. And I promise you, 
this is going to make sense. And I was like, oh, he's telling me it's going to make sense because I'm going to be in prison for the rest of my life. <laughs> so, you know, just trying to figure it out, figure it out. And I didn't have anybody to ask questions to. Like, I couldn't. My family was so devastated by this. Like, I didn't have anybody to say, what's happening? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. How, 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 does, how, is, this, how is this happening? I had Jesus to talk to. <laughs> and then I had my friends, Patrick and Joanne Quillec, you know, the chef that I worked for. Oh, the French chef. Yeah, so we had stayed in constant contact. They were like my pen pals the whole time I was gone. And then after I came to faith in Jesus, like they became like my biggest. Like, so, so y'all were writing back and forth? Letters, yeah. Okay. And they would send me books and stuff. Okay. But uh, so I wrote them a letter, and I was actually like, I don't want to like write them letters to worry them, but like I need some answers. Like, how could this happen to me? Like, and now I'm I've given my life to Jesus, and now they're telling me they're gonna lock me up forever. So, like, I needed I, I just I was confused, and I needed like I needed some answers. Like, I didn't know I didn't know where to navigate or what to do. And um, I wrote them a letter, and I think I got the letter back from them like two days later. Like, they wrote me right back. Wow. And she, uh, it was the letter, there was a short note from Patrick and then Joanne wrote me a long letter. And Joanne is Patrick's wife. Yes. Okay. And um, she was just like talking about her like faith journey. Like they had like seven or eight kids and um, she had like five kids before she ever came into a relationship with Jesus. And it was like, she never had any problems. And then the one child that she was pregnant with or gave birth to after you know she had a had an experience with Jesus she some some church or something where she went to told her you know believe for supernatural childbirth and do all these formula prayers and all stuff <laughs> and so she was trying to do what they were telling her to do but she ended up having complications and um almost uh, I don't remember the details but it was a very rough birth that she gave and she was so confused by that like well you know it's always been so easy to have babies and now you know I'm doing all the formulas that they're giving me (laughs) but she said she realized through that was that God is sovereign and you know we just have to trust him and not try to take matters into our own hands was basically what she said and then she said you remind me this reminds me of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament you're like Joseph And she said, I encourage you to go find that and read it and ask God to uh, open up some revelation for you in that. And up to that time, I've been reading the Bible, but I was pretty much camping out in the book of Proverbs, you know, reading what Jesus said. I didn't really care about all the other stuff. Give me another word for revelation. She said to ask God to give you some revelation. Like to reveal something to you. Okay. she was hearing from from God, for right, me. to show you something. Yeah, to show me something from that story. Mm-hmm. And so I went back, and you know, I immediately like cracked open my book of Genesis and went through and uh, found the story of Joseph. And it was basically he was a son of Jacob. You know, in the Old Testament, there was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob became Israel, and then Israel had twelve sons, and they became the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, let's stick with Joseph so we don't. Well, Joseph was the number 11 son. Oh, okay. 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 But see, I didn't understand all this at the time. I was just reading the story. Yeah. So in the story, he uh, his daddy loved him, apparently, more than the others. And he was a dreamer. And so he believed that he was special and that God had something great for his life. And he went out and told everybody about it. <laughs> so he got himself in trouble. So first off, he was already... Daddy's favorite, and then his daddy made him like a rainbow robe or something that made everybody mad at him because he had special clothes then. The coat of many colors? Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, he had a dream, and he told his brothers, I had a dream last night. You know, we was out gathering up weed or some kind of grain in the field, and, you know, we had all our sheaves together, and all y'all sheaves bowed down and worshiped my sheave. And What's that, a sheave? It's like a uh, a thing that they like roll up wheat and then roll around it. Okay. Like a holder. Okay. And and all all y'all bowed down to me, and so then they got mad. Like, who do you think you are, you little brat? You know, 
Is that what they said? We're not gonna. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> we're not. We're not gonna worship you. You ain't. You ain't nobody. Um, we're. You know. Um, they didn't like him. Yeah, I mean that does come off as kind of cocky. <laughs> but then that. he kept having these dreams. So then, you know, then later on he had a dream where he told all of them. He was like, "Yeah, all the eleven stars and the sun and moon bow down to me, um, to my star." And so his dad was like, "Son, what are you saying? You think you, me and your mother are gonna bow down and like you're some kind of king or something like that?" And but he was like sixteen, seventeen. He didn't know. He was just popping his mouth off. But then um, his brothers couldn't stand him, and then apparently that he his dad was sent out the ten brothers because he had a younger brother too, Benjamin would send out the ten brothers out to do all the work, and then he would stay home with mama and daddy. <laughs> and then, um, but he would send him he would send Joseph out to check on him and come tell me what your brothers are doing. Does that make sense? Like the spy on them. Well, well yeah, just to bit. check up on go go. But in the Bible, it said go give me a report of what they're doing. But basically, yeah. that means go see what they're doing and go snitch on them. Come back and tell me. So this one day, they're out in the field, they're working, and they saw him coming. And my my thing, I thought the reason they saw him coming was because he had on his rainbow <laughs> his rainbow coat, so they knew he was coming. And then they they were like, we just need to get rid of this little punk kid. You know, we just need to, I'm, we're tired of him. Who happens to be our brother. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was actually their half-brother. Okay. Um, but so they decided they were going to do something to him, so they threw him in a pit. And the older brother was like, we can't, you know, hurt him. He's our brother. And he went off and did something, went to have lunch or did something. And while he was gone, some some traders were coming through and they actually sold Joseph as a slave to these people for like a bag of silver or something. And then like he was, you know, crying and begging and pleading and they just basically sold him off into slavery. So here he is, a little dreamer kid, carried off into and they ended up taking him into Egypt. And then when he got there, he got bought by like a captain of the guard, Potiphar, like somebody that was, you know, high up in the government running stuff. And, you know, Egypt was like the ruling power of the world at that time. And, I mean, I understood history because I'd studied history. I just never really studied the Bible. I didn't really care about Bible stuff. Right. Um, but Egypt was like the power at that time. And um, so this guy took him, made him a slave, took him home. And Joseph, like, Kind of like me, like he would like adapt, figure it out, and work hard. It reminded me of myself when I was in the kitchen in prison in Florida. Yeah, like you know, just do your best work. You know, you need something to do. So this this captain noticed there was something different about him. Like he's everything I give him to do, he makes it better. So eventually, over the course of a year, a couple years, something he uh, turned his whole household over to him. So Joseph was a slave in Egypt, but he was running this huge household of this, this like, I guess nowadays would be like a general in the army or something. Like, okay. Like a top person. Yeah. And, a but, VIP. Yeah. So Joseph was, you know, doing his thing, rocking and rolling. But this Potiphar guy, he had a wife. And she got the hots for Joseph. And basically, like, she propositioned him, you know, hey, let me get some of that good Hebrew stuff. <laughs> and, um... He said no. <laughs> I'd like to know if she actually said that. Well, she she came at him. Like she you know how women are, especially older women when oh, they come God. after you. Lord, Do I know how women are? Well Anyway, we anyways, digress. We Go digress. ahead. Basically he told her no. He said, I can't do that. You know, I can't do that to my, my master or to my God because I'm I'm not gonna do I'm not gonna be doing all that. So she like cornered him one day in the house and it was just him and her and she was like basically like trying to rape him or something. So he like doubled up and got himself out of his robe and ran away. Like he ran, he fleed. He fled. <laughs> yeah, but you know that that old saying, uh, hell has no fury like a woman scorned? They used to tell me that was in the Bible, but it's not in the Bible. But I'm pretty sure if it was, it had to come from this. Cause so basically she wanted to have sex with him. She was coming on to him like very aggressively. Yeah. He was like refused and escaped, and she felt like an idiot. 
Yes. Or she felt. She was the woman scorned. Like, embarrassed. She yeah. was in, she was in, so. Humiliated, maybe is a better word. Yeah, so what she did was she started screaming and had everybody come, and she told him that he tried to rape her, which was not true. And when Potiphar found out, he threw Joseph in prison for that. So now Joseph was had been a slave. Now he was in prison. So while he was in prison, he, like, figured out how to make the best of it. Handle business, you know, do his best, and eventually he ended up running the prison, <laughs> which is odd. But, uh, I mean, this was like some 13, 14 years that passed by this time, and the king of Egypt— they Wait, call- so he was in prison that long, 13, 14 years? I think it was 14 years the whole time, like being a slave and then being in prison. Okay. And the king of Egypt, which was called the Pharaoh, he took his, like, his bartender and his butler— or baker, and threw him in prison. And they were sad and dejected and bothered, and Joseph was trying to help them out. And um, they said they were having these bad dreams. So Joseph said, well, you know, my God can help with the dreams, like if you tell me what the dreams are. So they told him his dreams, and Joseph told him, basically told the baker guy or the chef or whatever he was, like, your dream's a bad dream. He's going to have your head chopped off in two days. But then he told the bartender, or the cupbearer, it was called the cupbearer, but I just figured like he was making like Egyptian martinis or something for him. <laughs> um, he told the cupbearer, in three days, Pharaoh's going to restore you to your position. And please, please, when you get out of here, remember me. Like, I'm in here. I'm innocent, you know. And everything happened just like Joseph said, but then the bartender forgot about him. The bartender. <laughs> or the cupbearer, the cupbearer, excuse me. The cupbearer forgot about him. So um, as the story progressed, I mean, I was like really into the story. It was like, he's in a deep, dark mess, just kind of like me. <laughs> the only different, the only parallel, though, the difference was he was innocent and I wasn't. So, I mean, that would like, you know, that was you know, me trying to figure that out. That was playing with your mind a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So the Pharaoh started having bad dreams, and nobody could tell him what they meant. And he was, like, pressuring all his people and his magicians and all his religious people and priests to help him, and nobody could help him. And then the bartender remembered Joseph and was like, hold up, there's this guy in prison that told me my dreams. And so it was like, well, go get him, you know, go get him. So they went and got Joseph. They cleaned him up and brought him in front of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh told him the dream was, you know, there were seven cows. They were fat. And then these seven skinny cows came and ate the cows. And the other dream is there's seven, like, healthy wheat stalks. And then these seven, like, gnarly, unhealthy wheat stalks come and suck them up. And so Joseph was like, I can't interpret dreams, but, but God can. And if you'll give me a second, I'll tell you what they mean. He came back and he said, basically, Pharaoh, God's trying to warn you that you're going to have seven great years coming up, and they're going to be the best years you've ever had in your land. Everything's going to be wonderful, but then you're going to have seven years of famine that come after that, and those seven years are going to be so bad that you're not even going to remember the seven good years because of the, the havoc that's going to come on the earth. And he gave him a piece of advice. He said, if I were you, I would put somebody in charge of, like, all the grain and all the things, and I would save up out of the abundant years, save up for the for the uh, not good years. Prepare, basically. Yeah, and, yeah. like, put a stockpile. And so Pharaoh said, all right, done. We're going to make you the man in charge of it. So they basically took Joseph out of prison and made him, like, the— the vice president of Egypt, which was a world power at the time. I mean, like, he was the prime minister. Everything, he gave him everything. Fast forward, everything was going the way Joseph said it would go. He got married, had babies. You know, he was he was the man. Everywhere he went, people bowed down to him, just like his dream he had when he was a kid. And then um, his brothers and his family were affected by the famine, and they came to Egypt to buy grain. And... He looked up, and they were bowing down before him, just like he had dreamed, and uh, begging him, you know, because he had the power. And um, there's a lot to that story, but in the end, he revealed himself to them and told them, I'm Joseph, you know, you sent me here to do evil to me. You meant harm to me, but God sent me here to do good and to say, you know, basically 
through all this, what you did evil to me is this going to save the world and it's going to save you. So he forgave them and everything was all good and great. And, you know, he brought his family over to Egypt and he was like a king. And now his whole family was there with him. But what I got out of the story was is that there was a process. And right after that, I found a scripture it was in Mark, the Mark's gospel, the, like the fourth chapter, I believe, where Jesus said, and this was the words of Jesus, and this was what he gave me during that time, is that the kingdom of God is if a man should plant a seed in the ground and then leave it. And then he goes to sleep, gets up, rise night and day. He don't know how this works, but the seed sprouts, starts growing, it turns into a big plant, and then eventually it, it's a harvest. So basically what God was saying to me was, and it was so clear. I have you in a process, and I will make something beautiful out of your life if you will trust me. And it was so hard for me to, to like, say, I mean, I was like, okay. But, you know, all I see right now in front of me are white bars and these people telling me they're just going to keep me locked up for the rest of my life. And, I mean, and it was all around me. It wasn't just, it wasn't just like, the bars it was like the atmosphere it was like so thick in there you could cut it with a knife it was uh it was just depression and just anxiety and just hopelessness like in that kind of situation you would think it would be better if i was dead you know for sure than to be stuck in this i'd be better off dead but i did i believed i was like okay you know um i trust you i believe i'll just However long I got to be here, I'll just spend my time, you know, studying the, the, the Bible. I need to learn, like, your word and all that stuff. And it was the, um, I believe it was the third or fourth day. But it was, like, after I'd, like, surrendered. Like, okay, whatever you want. I, I mean, whatever you want to do, I'll, I'll figure out. Just if you help me, please help me, because I don't know. You just, you don't know. I mean, it's it's so sad. And these, these, the people crying, like they would bring the phones down, the guys would be on the phone crying and weeping and, and all through the night. And it was just, I mean, I think it's different. Like when you go to to death row, like there's a death row, like yeah. if you have a death sentence and that's that Atmore. Well, there's one at West Jefferson too, but they actually, you know, you're on death row like 20, 30 years before you get executed. But they have them in like a pod where it's most of those guys are they know they have a distance they've kind of processed it so this at Kilby these were people it's fresh so they got a life without parole sentence and it's fresh like they haven't even processed the fact that I'm going to die in prison unless some by some miracle something happens and for me I didn't have the sentence yet but the uh, expectation was there. The DA said that's what he was asking for. And that was, again, in the 90s, it was just so popular to just drop one of them down on you. I mean, it was like, I think some of that was political, but it was like the public liked it. They liked it. They want to get, you know, you want to be out here robbing people? We need to keep you locked up forever. But I had a weird, uh, it was like, it was like a word that God gave me like my third or fourth day it was but it was after like I went through the process and you know I surrendered and I trust and I did I believed like what else I got to do I mean I mean I ain't got no other options anyways I mean I hate to say that but it's the truth like if you're talking to me and I'm listening and you got something for me I want it Mm -hmm. it's hard to explain like when God when you say that God spoke to you like I don't know that I've ever had like a voice come down from heaven and speak to me (laughs) But from the onset, before I ever gave my heart to Jesus, like there was like a still small voice that told me, all you have to do is give up and ask me to come in. And I was like, okay, I give up. You know, when I got there, I give up, come in, if this is real. And so it was kind of like another one of those experiences where he was just like, all I need you to do is just trust me. And I was like, Okay, I give up. I trust you. I mean, I don't know what to do. And he gave me like a flash. It was like a memory flash. It was when I was in Bay County. 
which was in 1990. That would have been in 1993, so that would have been like four years before. And I was in with my public defender who sucked. Like, she wasn't even a good public defender. (laughs) She was just trying to, you know, check the box, go to prison, you know, whatever. But I was in a thing with her where they were, they have these things called, um, it's the way they score you to sentence you. So in Florida, it was, it's ultimately up to the judge, but they like score you out for what your crime calls for. And then if you have priors, it makes your score go up. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like a credit score. Yeah. <laughs> but it's this, Except you don't want your score to be high in no. this case. <laughs> uh-uh, this, is a, this is a prison score. Yeah. Like, you, <laughs> you want that score to be low. You want your prison score to stay low. And plus, mine were armed robbery, so I, mine was already high. But whatever your priors are will make your score go up. So when, when they were negotiating with my plea bargain with the district attorney in Bay County there in Panama City, she had the papers laid out, and they scored me. And they bumped my score up because I had been convicted of battery on a law enforcement officer in Jefferson County. And she was like, oh, no, 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 you can't use that. And they were like, what do you, what do you mean? And she said, technically that happened after he committed this crime, so you can't use that against him. You can't score him on that. And uh, I guess it's just one of those little rules that maybe some people don't know. It was a technicality. A technicality, And yeah. it's a miracle that she knew because she ain't even somebody that really, she didn't care about me. Like, yeah. I was just another case that she needed to. Yeah. But she made a thing out of it, and then they were like, oh, let us come back. And then they came back and said, you're right. Like, we can't use that under the law. We can't use that against him because it happened after. Mm-hmm. So my score stayed low. They gave me my six years and went to prison. I was in that cell in this hopeless situation, and I remembered that. And I, like, my mind, I was like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Everything that they were using to give me the three strikes you're out happened after the crime that I committed in Shelby County. It was my first crime. That was my, remember you asked me what was the first armed robbery you did, and I told you it was in Shelby County? Mm-hmm. That was my first crime. So technically under the law, they couldn't hold any of that against me. And I just like was like, ain't no way. <laughs> like, uh, ain't no way, you know. They're... Really quick, just so I'm like clear, why couldn't they hold that against you? Because it happened after I committed the crime. So my first crime was in Shelby County. Yeah. In, I think it was November of 1993. The one in Montgomery was in December of 1993. The one I committed in Florida was in January of 1993. Oh, I'm sorry, 92. Uh, These were my first one was November 92, then December 92, then January 93, and then the battery on law enforcement officer in the uh, uh, Jefferson County, Florida, was in January 93. So all these things happened after that, so they couldn't use it against me in the scoring. They couldn't score it against me. Okay. So they couldn't count it against me. So three strikes you're out did not apply. But now I'm a little kid sitting in a lockdown at Kilby Correctional Facility facing life in prison without parole, and I have this information. And I'm like, Jesus, like, are you, are you telling me this? Like, I mean, what do you, what do you want me to do? And I called for the phone. I called my mom. Got in touch with my lawyer, Mr. DeBell, DeBar, DeBalloon. DeBartalabin? I don't know how to say his name. It was a long, it was D-E-B-A-R-D-E-B-A-L. It was a long name. I think it's DeBartalabin. I've seen the It name. may be. I, I don't went know. to high school with a DeBartalabin. In Pensacola? Yeah. Well, maybe they're kin, kin, kin to the Montgomery <laughs> DeBell, DeBar, DeBalloons. DeBartalabins. DeBartalabins, whatever. <laughs> Anyways, remember I told you this guy was for me. Remember? Mm-hmm. In Montgomery. I think he was a believer. He was like a real lawyer. He was a public defender, but he was like it was a pro bono case. And I got in touch with him, and I told him that, you know. Yeah. And he was like, let me get back with you. And then, like, he got back with me, like, in a couple hours. and was like, you're right. They can't use that. They can't use that against you. Wow. And so the hopeless situation that I was in was over, and they let me out. They, like, reversed the curse. Wait, they let you out of Lockdown. The lo- of lockdown. Okay. Yeah. So I, I still had a 10-year sentence. Yeah. Like, I still had to do that, but I, that was a 10-year sentence plus time served. So, I mean, it was only like a, a six-year sentence. And then with good time, it could be, you know, I could have I been out in a year. Yeah, but going from thinking that 
you're more than likely going to be life without parole. You're going to die in there too, <laughs> reversing but, that. But here's the other. Here's the miracle of that. The lawyers didn't know that. They didn't know that. Jesus told me that. Yeah. I, I'm convinced. I have no doubt. They didn't know it. They were just well, like... Well, even back to the situation of the DA that you said sucked, that she knew that technicality. Not DA, public defender. Oh, public defender. Yeah. That wasn't good and was not for you and didn't care. Yeah. But she knew that technical, that technicality. And she called him on it. And called him on it, and you remembered that. I don't think I remember because I remember at the time I didn't care. I mean, I was like, okay, whatever. Um, it wasn't. It didn't. It didn't have. It wasn't the weight, a big deal. As big a deal then as it was going to play out later. But, but now, what four or five years later, I'm sitting on almost death row. It's not death row. It was life without prison. Life without parole row. And I remember that, and I know that God showed me that. I believe it was the very next day. Like He filed some kind of motion. They reversed the curse, and then they came and let me out. They reversed the curse. <laughs> so basically, sweet home Alabama, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's exhausting. <laughs> sweet home Alabama was trying to take James K. Jones out. <laughs> like, we want you out. We want you to have an X behind your name. We want you to die in prison. But Jesus had a better plan for my life. And that part, I mean, that in itself was a miracle. And, you know, like, you know, I, I joke about the Ooty Booties. Like, people try to make God this super... Let's and, give, and, a, give a very quick James K. Jones definition to the Ooty Booties. Ooty <laughs> Booties. <laughs> I, I've been saying that for a year. I picked that up from somewhere. It's just like where you over-spiritualize everything. Okay. And God is a spirit, and he's real. Jesus is real. Every, I mean... But, you know, everything ain't always, oh, you know, mm-hmm. he's also very practical. He's here with me. He knows what I'm going through. He knew that I was locked up in a little coffin. They were fixing to send me to prison for the rest of my life, and he intervened. And he could have just busted the bars down like he did in the Bible. You know, sometimes he did that for people. <laughs> but then I would have been on escape, and I could have never, would have never met you and got married. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's just like he just gave me one one little flash of a memory, one word. Like, remember this. Pow. Boom. It's over. It's over. Just like that. That's crazy. And, you know, there's been so many times that's happened, stuff like that since then. But this, this one was like, that is extreme. That was an extreme, like, situation. But it did something in me that I think it was like a week and a half maybe I was in there. It did something to me. Number one, it I understood that there was a process. Like this is a process and it's gonna be like this forever. And that has served me well over the last twenty what was that, twenty five years ago when that happened. It's cause God always has a I'm always in a process. I mean we're in a process right now. Yeah. But it's always it's always for my good, it's always for his plan, it's always for his you know, he gets the credit and the glory, but... Uh, I would say it's always for our best. It is for Not our best. Not even just good. I mean, the best. Version. You know, his steps, when he orders your steps, and if you belong to him, he does. Even, you know, even if you mess up, <laughs> he's going to get you back on, you know, where you need to be. It's kind of like a, a GPS, like, you know, I'm a late adopter on, like, technology. I didn't want a GPS because I thought they were stupid. But no, but I thought, like, if you have a GPS and you put in the GPS and then you miss the turn, then you just got to, you're screwed. But I realized, like, the first week or so I had a GPS was if you miss the turn, it reroutes you. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to get to your destination. You might have missed the easy turn, and you may have to make a U-turn and do whatever, but God is like that. Like, he's got a plan. He's got a process. I might have made a mistake. I might have missed the turn, but he's going to reroute me, and I'm going to get back. You know, his whatever his plan is, it's gonna happen. And I would really need that later on to understand that and believe that. But the next season of my life or the next, you know, part of it was pretty amazing because of that. Because I saw how like you're still in prison, but you're saying it was I'm amazing. still in it was. Um, I'm still in prison, but I saw that not only am I known and I know him, he knows me. And he's got a plan, and his plan is going to work out, and no matter what it looks like. 
that makes sense? Yeah. I so, mean, that's the ultimate, really, story of, like, I think someone like me, that might be, you know, a picture example that you might say, that you might use of, like, being in prison and there's nowhere to go. But, like, that was actually your real story. There was... No hope. No hope. There was nothing. Besides being literally in prison. Yeah. I was uh, three strikes. I'm out. Yeah. I'm out. Because I think we all feel that way in situations in our life feeling like I am stuck and there is no way out of this. Like like in different, you know, whether it be financial or relationship or whatever, I Mm -hmm. think we can, even I and I think most people can relate to like I am, there is, I haven't, there's no way out. There's no way out. Whether I did it on my own or... You know, something bad happened to me, whatever. So, but for you, it was the same thing, but there was literal bars, like a physical space you could not get out. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. just very real. Well, now, I've told my story many times, um, but one of the things that's always stood out to me, like when I tell it, especially like in a secular setting, when I tell my story, I've had so many people come up to me and say... Secular meaning non-Christian not people that don't believe the same way. Yeah, not not, you know, not not making it like a church thing. And we're not trying to make this podcast a church thing either. No, it's just it's your a, story. It's my story. story. But yeah. Jesus, is is the is, this is his story, my so, story. So, sorry, you were saying that when you tell us in a secular setting. There's always somebody that comes up to me afterwards and says, and it's usually somebody that doesn't look like they fit, like would even be impacted by my story. And they say, I've never been in prison, but, you know, but I was in a prison of alcoholism. I mean, I'm, I remember one lady told me, I, was in a pri- I wasn't in prison like you, but I was in a prison that was beer- built by liquor bottles because I was a hopeless alcoholic. Or I was in a prison of abuse in a relationship. Or I was in a prison of, you know, financial ruin. Just all the things. Like, people yeah. always can and relate to that. And it's true. It's the same. I mean... We all have prisons we find ourselves in. Wherever we're stuck at, Jesus don't want us to stay stuck. He can unstick us. But we have to do it his way. Like, we, I had to walk walk that out his way. Yeah. And, you know, it's scary, but uh, this is probably where we need to end this one. Yes. Um, the next next episode, I think it's pretty exciting. We'll talk about... You're back to regular population. Well, not just that. They didn't send me back to the dorm that looked like Sam's, the wild, wild, wild west. They actually moved me to a chapel dorm, which was, we called it the chapel dorm because it was next to the chapel, but it was smaller. I would meet people there that were foundational in the rest of my life, even up to this day. Um, Just my experiences with like Church folks, like the, especially the free world church people, Lord have mercy. It's the free world? The people that came in to do Meaning prison people, ministry. Uh, people not in prison. People not in prison. Yeah. And then like the, the Christian brotherhood there and then, you know, baptism and all this, you know, all this other stuff. And then there were some uh, for real Jesus followers that I connected with. And um, But we'll talk about some of the crazy stuff I saw people do with like Christianity and religion and all that stuff. And then... There was another phenomenon that I didn't see coming that I'll just leave you hanging on that one. That's exciting. It's good stuff. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. Any Anything to add? Nope, but I'm sure I'll have some next time. Well, we really appreciate the feedback we've been getting from you guys. It's very encouraging. Feel free. Like anything you think we need to do different or could do better, let us know. All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Straight Out of Prison podcast. For more exclusive content, head over to our website, timjones.co slash podcast. Yes, you can subscribe by clicking on the Become a Patron button, and that's going to get you access to our For Real Reel, which is very different than the Highlight Reel. Some very juicy content there. Good stuff. Or you can look us up on Facebook and Instagram, Straight Out of Prison Podcast. Yes, that takes the story to a whole new level where you can see some of the people that James talks about in his story and see some of the places that he's been. I've been loving it, and you will too. Prison recipes. Yeah, all the things. (laughs) Good stuff. (laughs) We'll see you soon, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed the podcast. It's written and produced by the Team Jones Company. Yours truly, James and Haley Jones. If you're interested in advertising with us, head over to teamjones.co and click the Join Forces button. We've redesigned our media kit with some exciting new details. If you'd like more information about being a sponsor, email me, Haley, Haley at teamjones.co. That's not .com. The best way to support us is by telling your friends and family about the podcast. Other ways to support us is by liking and sharing the podcast and giving us a review. Well, as long as you think we did good. (laughs) Or you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and more. Thank you, thank you, thank you guys for all your support, all your encouragement, and thank you for being a part of our story. All right, guys, y'all show some love to the sponsors of the Straight Out of Prison podcast. Our friend Keely Brown runs her family-owned HVAC Home and Commercial Services. Is your system ready for the summer? Schedule a system checkup or reprogram your thermostat. They offer residential and commercial, at home or at work. They really do what they say, and they say what they do. Our family serving your family has been their core value since day one. Their founder and owner, Mr. Robert Holland, made sure the foundation of home and commercial services was and is integrity. Now, remember, Haley, we, we catered an event last December where he was a part of the group that we were feeding. But it was interesting to learn that when he was a young man, when he first started in the HVAC business, Mr. Holland actually got in trouble with, for not adding new parts that the people didn't need. And they were like, why didn't you sell the parts? And he was like, because I could fix them. And they were like, no, no, you're, you're, you're doing it wrong. Like, you just got to put new parts. And he was like, but they didn't need new parts. And it bugged him so much that he went out and started his own business. And that's the foundation of home and commercial services. And we can attest to that personally. I mean, they've done so much stuff for us. It's crazy. I love that story. And I think it speaks to, obviously, his integrity and what he's built his business on that integrity. Right now, the most economical service they offer is their annual residential service agreement. For $150, you'll get two annual checkups, and that's for one system. If if it's an additional system, it's 25% off. Anyways, the annual contract includes priority service, normal rates for after-hour service, 10% discount on any repairs, and a 5% discount on any new installations. It's a good deal especially with the heat of the summer coming. Home and Commercial Services works on all name brands of heating and air conditioning units, gas furnaces, heat pumps, walk-in coolers, and smart thermostats. No job is too big or too small. Call or text Keely at 205-798-0635. Or you can email at office at hollandhcs.com. You can look up Holland Home and Commercial Services on Instagram for daily tips and more. Or you can check out their website, hollandhcs.com. We have some amazing friends and supporters of the podcast. Lynn and Debbie Hurst are on Hurst Towing and Recovery in Fultondale and Hayden, Alabama. They serve the Jefferson, Blunt, and surrounding counties. They tow light and heavy-duty vehicles, and they're always there to help. We wouldn't call anybody else. We would never call anybody else, and that's a fact. Would you like to work for an amazing company that treats their employees like family? The Hearst are hiring. Full and part-time positions. Give them a call today. Hearst Towing is there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They've been in our area since January of 1987. They have a heart to serve and they love making an impact in the communities they grew up in. The Hearst definitely make a difference in our world. And they have definitely made a difference in our lives. Dispatchers are always ready to receive calls at 205-631-8697. That is 205-631-TOWS. T-O-W-S. <laughs> you, get, you get me every time I with the toes. <laughs> <laughs> or check out their website at hearsttowing.com. Now, y'all know James from the podcast, but he also is an amazing cook and private chef. I can attest to that personally. I've had many years of experience in food, just working in, managing, and even owning a couple restaurants. One of his greatest passions is preparing delicious food. You know, if somebody's going through something or through a hard time and you don't know what to do, you can always cook for them. Head over to ChefJamesKJones.com to join our email list. Once you do that, you can stay updated on everything that we're doing.